Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. If we can, be, uh, we can interrogate religion, why not politics? Recently, it's become fashionable to submit the notion of religion to the process of radical interrogation. In his Forster lectures on the immortality of the soul at UC Berkeley, something that must have tickled uh, this, uh, this particular lecturer, last October, anthropologist Talal Assad from uh, City University of New York continued a line of inquiry he initiated at least as early as 1993. There he sought to expose <clears throat> the cultural and historical particularity of notions like religion by locating uh, them within specific universes of discourse and practices of the Latin West. For Assad, such historical location has meant denying such notions as religion the right to serve as universal cross-cultural comparative categories. Since religion is our Western word, emergent from our own history, it cannot be useful in making senses of other worlds of discourse and practice. In the concluding paragraph of Assad's classic essay and much, uh, and much celebrated article on the subject, he lays out two ways that the term religion is limited in this way. Thus, Assad says first that, quote, the meanings of religious practices and utterances, unquote, and that their, quote, their authoritative status are to be explained as products of historically distinct discourses and forces, unquote. Second, Assad seeks, quote, to problematize the idea of anthropological definition of religion by assigning that endeavor to our particular history of knowledge and power out of which the modern world has been constituted, unquote. Coupled with these historicizing and contextualizing uh, efforts in, uh, concerning religion, however, is an odd, it is oddly somewhat asymmetrical, it seems to me, to absolutize politics and power in the process. How does power create religion is a question Assad himself puts to us, literally. So while Assad feels, quote, that religion merits radical interrogation, power and politics seem under his um, regime to be excused from the same sort of historicizing. Assad says, power is central in history, unquote. And further of himself, he says, power, I've always been concerned with the question of power. All my writings from the beginning have been focused on it, unquote. But neither the centrality of power nor Assad's abiding interest in it have called forth for the need for him to interrogate it, to historicize it. So as confident as Assad's assertions may be, a simple exercise can bring out just how oddly asymmetrical and thus vulnerable Assad's position can be. Consider how easy it, it is universally and to substitute without loss either the terms power or politics for religion in those very same two quotes I uh, just cited. Substituting accordingly, we, can, we could read, for example, in this new version, that is, quote, the meanings of political practices and utterances that their possibility and their authoritative status are to be explained as products of historically distinct discourses and forces. We put religion in the, in the seat of the explicandum, so to speak. Further, consider again how natural it is to substitute politics for religion in the passage of Assad's to follow, where he says, he seeks, quote, to problematize the idea of anthropological definitions of politics 
by assuming, by assigning their endeavor to a particular history of knowledge out of which the modern world has been constituted, unquote. In these forms, such a reformulated version of Assad's historicizing program for religion yields a program, I think, for historicizing power and politics. My talk today will show how one might begin just doing that kind of thing. I'm seeking, therefore, in this talk, in a way, you might say, to be truer, in effect, to Assad than Assad may be able to be true to himself. I shall seek to begin raising a veil, the veil that Assad drapes over power and politics, and in so doing, submit power and politics to the same sort of radical interrogation that he affords religion. What are some of the more deeply entrenched, historically founded assumptions about power and politics that shape and condition how we think about the world as a world of power and politics, for example? I shall argue that the history of, the Latin, of Latin Christianity that is the greatest part of the history of religion in the West, has actually worked to determine much of, of our widely assumed conceptions of the nature of power in politics. In effect, I will invert Assad's program by historicizing politics and power in such a way that we might conclude by seeing how religion has made both power and politics, and therefore why we cannot free our politics from religion. Where there is no politics, despotism, and totalitarianism. The first step in any attempt to get historical purchase on these categories is to disenchant the universal, essential, or transhistorical pretensions of them. As it happens, the modern English words have to do with politics show an intense historicity. Our word for that strange beast, the politician, does not appear until 1586 in George Wetson's The English Mirror. The original French word, politicien, is not much older. The elusiveness of the meanings of modern terms like politics likewise is confirmed from many sources, not least of all from the political philosopher much in vogue these days, Carl Schmitt, whose picture you have here, who claimed that, quote, one seldom finds a clear definition of the political. This historical particularity of politics has even led some political thinkers like Kenneth Minog of LSE to claim that in traditional despotism or in modern totalitarianism, politics simply does not exist. A rather provocative statement, of course, meant to be so. Here, one refers to the absence of citizenship, the absence of the distinction between private and public realms, or to the absence of realized conflict or the overcoming of conflict among groups. In short, to the absence of those features that distinguish what the word politics commonly means in conventional modern English usage. At court or in the king's household, there will surely be gossip galore, vendettas without end, and all sorts of maneuvering within a circle of elites. But there is really no politics. There is no politics because there is no territorial state, no body politic apart from the very physical body of the monarch. There are only quarrels and associations that congeal around the concrete physical person of the monarch. And how different, really, in substance are the so-called international politics, so-called of modern, uh, pre-modern monarchies, from the feuds between ri the rival DeMeo or Lupertazzi crime families of the Sopranos series. Either way, this radical reduction of politics in the pre-modern West means that it is by definition absent from the public square. Conversely, politics is present only inside the private, 
personal or domestic life of the monarch. In this sense, their politics and ours are two different species of being altogether. Like the king's garments or the affairs of his personal household, politics, in a sense, practiced by despots is really none of anyone's business. How much, by contrast, were the procreative acts and childbearing events of the monarch public business, public business on the, uh, as well? For us, it is, of course, totally opposite. We draw the lines in public and private very differently. Politics not only is everyone's business, it should be everyone's business. Engagement in politics is a citizen's duty and for some the acme, the very acme of public life. When Robespierre memorably argued for the formal execution of Louis XVI, he declared that, quote, the king must die so that the nation might live. Robespierre, as well as those regicides of the English Civil War, thus gave gruesome voice to the insight that politics as a private affair of the king, whose very body is the body politic, and whose head was once bathed in the anointing oil of monarchy, comes to an end only when that monarch is ritually unanointed, when that anointed body politics is dismembered and dissolved, such as um, this this picture here of the... um, the beheading of Charles I in front of the banqueting house in the Whitehall in England, or um, the presentation of the head of Charles I by um, one of the regicide judges, I believe. When that anointed body politic is dismembered and dissolved, when that governing head is ritually and solemnly severed from its compliant body. And, of course, the famous uh, execution scene of Louis XVI and... um, one I think we've seen a lot, where the head is displayed as finally removed and the body politic uh, as the monarch basically ended. Politics thus as a public matter only comes to birth in the categorical negation of its opposite. This is no less than to say that traditional despotism, focused as it is on the person of the prince, represents a politics that is really no politics at all. Similarly, in modern totalitarianisms, the domain in which politics happens is effectively reduced to the inner workings of an inner party. Although modern totalitarianisms are quintessentially power states, they have no politics, or at best a politics so curtailed as to be the private matter of of a few. Raymond Aron, the the French political philosopher, pointed out this paradox of totalitarianism by noting, quote, during the midst of the Cold War, Quote, on the side, on the other side of the Iron Curtain, power, pouvoir in this case, is terrifying because it encompasses the whole collectivity and is reserved to a minority. Similarly, we might want to turn a critical eye upon ourselves and the easy cynicism and impatience that frames so much of our our sneering public talk about politics and politicians. We should not smugly think that the appetite for an end to politics fed only by the rise of totalitarianisms of the past is a thing of the past. It is a dish always ready to be warmed up and served anew. Thus, we see this this, uh, uh, political poster of of, um, Mussolini to illustrate, in some sense, what what the Italian fascists at least thought they were doing in uh, bringing... Uh, order, the men in a phalanx and Mussolini with his his fists clenched marching forward. And out here we have the the aimless, rootless uh, masses 
uh, who engage in, in, in politics, who are constantly quarreling, bickering politicians. I mean, every time Cokie Roberts says bickering politicians, I switch off the sound. Uh, it's, that, it's, that, it's, that, it's as if there's, as if it's one word. That kind of uh, smug cynicism, I think, is a symptom of exactly the same kind of uh, sense that there is that the, the politics is something that we don't want. That is that is that, that might be safely eliminated. I mean, she doesn't really believe that, of course, but that's what that's what the, every right wing um, uh, uh, totalitarian um, that was uh, at stock and trade of their of their of their propaganda. Ironically. Religion would, as Assad portrays it, be as quintessentially a private matter as, as was the politics of pre-modern or totalitarian despotism. In its familiar construction, one we're all familiar with, religion as a belief and belief in God, something that's private and so forth, religion has vacated, in this sense, the public square to take refuge in the inner sanctum of the human heart and personal conscience. Religion, then, is little more than a matter of having certain beliefs, of enjoying certain inner experiences, and that is to say, in effect, of being the perfect mirror image of the secular or political realm of modernity, as modernity comprehends them. Autonomous politics. But what makes the concept of politics even more interesting is at least another point of perhaps an ontological sort. Neither politics, as construed by the minimal source of definitions we find in dictionaries or the nor the categorical differences we find between kinds of despotic or totalitarian regimes, fully brings out the radical nature of our historically constructed assumptions about the political. Here, thanks to Machiavelli, Hobbes, and a host of others, politics, like the free market, is imagined to be an autonomous, independent realm of human life. Prominent proponents of this autonomous politics are those we call political realists, people like uh, Hans Morgenthau, Hans Morgenthau and his better-known latter-day disciple, of course, Henry Kissinger. For Morgenthau, the political is autonomous in the sense that he defines politics as having no history, since it is something absolute and timeless. Morgenthau says, quote, politics, like society in general, is governed by objective laws that have their roots in human nature, not in human culture, not in human history. Further, quote, the laws of politics have not changed since the classical philosophies of China, India, and Greece, and the endeavor to discover them. Of other sources of value in the public square, law, morality, religion, and so forth, uh, Morgenthau says, one cannot but subordinate these other standards to those of politics. For the realists, then, it is the political that reserves the right to regulate economic life or to demand the allegiance of moral and religious communities. The conviction that politics is such a unique and independent sphere of human life is on its other side, of course, to assert its claim to freedom from economic constraints or religious and moral reservations. With the separation of politics from religion in mind and just this way, Columbia's Mark Lilla argues in a celebrated recent book that we in this modern age have achieved what he calls, quote, the liberation, isolation, and clarification of distinctly political questions. Apart from speculations about a divine nexus, politics became, intellectually speaking, its own realm, deserving independent investigation and serving the limited aim of providing the peace and plenty necessary for human dignity. That was the great separation, as Lilla calls it. It is thus we in the history of West, in the West, who have, made, who have given birth to this politics and its strange, singular offspring such as the politician, or better yet, what we call the professional politician, 
As the great Max Weber argued, this being enters our politics not as a mere avocation, as some casual or occasional pastime, but as a member of a freshly emergent species of human being. Politics is thus, quote, a profession, unquote, says Weber, nigh unto a sacred calling, a vocation. This creature may live both for politics or off politics. A leading politician, quote, unquote, leading politician, or a minister, this creature consciously cultivates politics, policies as a kind of art. Yet in the West, Weber contends, this new creature is not to be confused with that figure found elsewhere, the person who serves and counsels the prince, while this creation of ours may do politics in the dedicated service of some lord, Weber argues that it is only in the West that the professional politician serves powers other than the prince in a dedicated and routinized professional way as a professional politician. Where our politics makes no sense. Besides looking into our history in this way, we can get purchase on the singularity of our own notion of politics by submitting it to the chastening rigors of cross-cultural comparison. Two prominent admirers of the British anthropologist E.E. Evans Pritchard, that is Mary Douglas and Louis Dumont, Douglas and Dumont, have called attention to Evans Pritchard's refusal to grant our notion of politics universal application or autonomous status. Douglas doubts, for example, whether the newer folk of East Africa with whom uh, Evans Pritchard worked quote, can be said to have anything corresponding to political institutions, unquote. At best, she says, quote, the newer political science scene is sparse, practically empty, unquote. For Douglas, politics lacks the vivid reality it has for us because among the newer there is, quote, no accumulation of power. The phrase ordered anarchy, she says, seems to describe the situation better. And to assume that the newer had such a politics would, according to her, uh, as it would for Assad with religion, incidentally, amount to a, quote, careless imposing of ideas from one culture to another. That is our politics upon the newer who have none. For Dumont's part, he too doubts the universality of politics as a cross-cultural term. And citing Evans Pritchard, he notes that, quote, there is no guarantee that just because modern societies clearly distinguish a political dimension, it makes a good comparative dimension. Like our assumption of the universality of the free market, the, quote, political approach fits into our habits of thought, while other approaches might challenge its validity, unquote, from Dumont. In conceiving politics as autonomous and as universal, we thus may well be engaged in a devious exercise of protecting an investment in our own precious categories. Worse, however, than just protecting an entrenched way of thinking about the world, recent history should be teaching us that a nation's behaving in a way that presumes the autonomy of politics, say from religion, in international affairs can lead a country into costly policy missteps such as we are now experiencing in the Muslim world. There, as we slowly perhaps are learning, religion and politics are not automatically considered autonomous of one another, and to consider them to be so is uh, rife with danger for us. Thanks to the efforts of anthropologists like Evans Pritchard, it becomes highly problematic whether we can assume the universality of any autonomous politics at all. 
Yes, the newer do ally themselves to others or alternately quarrel with them. They fight and they feud individually and collectively. They mediate their fights and their feuds and alliances and treatises. But the newer do not separate out those activities as political. Organized political life, quote-unquote, simply does not exist for them. Thus, whatever else one might find among the newer, we do not find an emergent politics or or autonomous political system no more than we do a free market. There will be then no newer Machiavelli, no newer Hobbes, nor newer Hans Morgenthau or Henry Kissinger. How our politics began, an institutional question about empire and church. The task of interrogation then demands showing how profoundly our concepts of power and politics have been constructed by the vicissitudes of the history of the West, and in particular by our religious history. How then did our distinctive beliefs about power and politics originate in that history? How in particular did we come to conceive of power as a unified field, encompassing such different species of things as signaled by the Latin potestas, force, coercive force, over against auctoritas, authority, such that we speak naturally of both as power, How is it that we commonly line up Machiavelli or Hobbes and think about politics as supreme over religion and even economics? One intriguing way of telling this story comes from Dumont, again. In the latter part of his life, after a career of writing on caste kinship and world renunciation in India, Dumont focused his ethnographer's gaze onto the question of why power occupied the privileged place in Western ways of constructing the world. Here, the practice of cross-cultural comparison of religions paid dividends. For when compared with us, the classical Hindu system of social values expressed in the Varna system did not privilege power as we seem to. Instead, the Varna system ranked dharma, very loosely translated as morality or ritual duty, something of that sort, and thus authority as something like, or something like auctoritas, over the social value of arta, again loosely translated as instrumental means, force, and thus power, something like potestas. This ranking of values within the Varna system corresponded theoretically and at any, rate to a, at any rate to a ranking of the social grouping seen as embodying these values, the Brahmins or priests embodying the auctoritas of Dharma over against the kshatriya or military men, kings and the like, embodying the potestas of Artha. In the classical Indian case described by Dumont then, there is then neither a privileging of politics or power nor a conception of power as a unified field. In classic Hindu cosmology, dharma and artha are two species of agency indeed. For simplicity's sake, things we can think of as authority and coercive force. They are not, however, lesser or greater species of coercive force. Why then do we in the West look on power as a unified field when at least one other great world civilization has not or did not? For Dumont, comparison teaches us that these things taken for granted as natural about ourselves need not have been so. Differences among societies result in a way from different choices, deliberate or not, that they have made in the course of their histories. What we take for granted about power as a category, say, that is as a unified field, might have been quite otherwise. Western society might have chosen to be other than it is today, for example, and history would have taken different turns uh, as a result. What if the early republics like of Italy had survived the onslaught of absolutism? 
What if figures like Gandhi, Martin Luther King, or Lesh Fuenza had been more prominent parts of our own political history and not the latter-day entries into it, thanks in part, of course, to classical India, that they had been? Would a doctrine of divine right of kings have developed and all that followed in reaction to it had there not been an already in place an equally absolute and competing theory of the divine right of popes? Would there now, would there now be a system of nation-states in the West had the Reformation not occurred? Questions like these. These are all courses of history that might have taken, been, 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 taken, been uh, otherwise, given different sorts of choices made in the course of events. And it was just this sort of realization of the contingency of the present that led Dumont back into the roots of Western civilization, into our own classical past, into the history of the Latin West to seek to understand why we think more generally about our categories like power and politics as we do. Now, when it comes to thinking about the key political notion of power in the West, Dumont argues any inquiry into its meaning leads necessarily back to the Roman Empire. If any institution stood for the embodiment of power in the history of the West, it was the Roman Empire. But in thinking about empire and power, we would need to think about the only other institution of the time that could have put imperial power into relief. And here only the Christian church fulfills the requirements for such an institution significant enough to stand over against imperial power. What Dumont is arguing is that our present-day speech about power has been determined by the structural historical relationships between modern institutions, major institutions, as the relation between major social institutions like empire and church change. So also does he, is he arguing that our conventional ways of thinking and speaking change, including significantly about values that these institutions were felt to represent and embody, such as power or force. Thus, if the relation between empire and church stood in effect for the opposition of potestas to auctoritas, then a change in the structural relation between these great overarching institutions would be felt, so to speak, at the level of individual attitudes and beliefs about those same values. Let me suggest that a reason for the deep disquiet about alleged Bush administration attempts to tamper with, that is, politicize the U.S. attorneys are at least two. First is the fear of a profound disturbance of structural relations between key American institutions. Second, however, is the fear that the result and effect of this action might have, sh uh, might have on shared assumptions about public life. Despite America's not loving to pay taxes, think only of the difference between the U.S. and Italy when it comes to paying taxes. We do so reluctantly, while by reputations, Italians are thought to consider tax evasion a kind of indoor sport. One obvious place to begin in teasing out this relationship would be documented instances of the struggle between the church and the empire for supremacy. How, how in particular might the resolution of these institutional struggles have shaped not only the relation of the empire and church, but also our thinking about the values represented by each? How would the resolution of this relationship have shaped our presuppositions that power, in the sense of political power, coercive force, and so forth, dominates the entire terrain of agency. For Dumont, the relationship between the Roman emperors and the church corresponded originally to the distinction between two entities and functions, separated out as defining the agonistic distinction between the so-called spiritual over against the temporal. The, the uh, opposition of authority of the priest, the auctoritas of the priest, over the coercive force of the king or the emperor uh, is another one of these relationships. 
In the early centuries, back in this, uh, there was a back and forth content, contestation that afflicted those relationships. To whom did su- uh, supremacy belong? And which of these institutions was superior? The empire because it monopolized force and power and thus guaranteed the church its material existence? Or the church because it represented God's ultimate authority and made imperial rule legitimate? Which of the two different kinds of agencies, potestas or auctoritas, was the higher? An example that might <clears throat> bring this conflict home would be the clashes between the emperors and the church over religious matters, matters of religious doctrine, such as at the Council of Nicaea. Constantine, whose picture you have here, a serious-looking fellow, had convened the council largely to achieve political compromise among his feuding Christian subjects by obtaining a doctrinal compromise. It was inevitable that at Nicaea, Constantine would collide occasionally with the claim of the church to remain the superior institution. By contrast, the Pope and the Council were keen on matters of maintaining their authority by defining doctrine as the basis for orthodox unity. Feeling all too well the threat to their authority by the oppressive presence of the imperial power, Potestas, the church leadership resented the ruler's intrusion in the preserve of ecclesiastical authority. An empire and church thus stood in an uneasy and unresolved opposition to one another, representing two different sorts of interests and two competing kinds of reality. Their constant fishing in the waters of the other also rendered the relation of empire and church intellectually incoherent. That neither empire nor church had a satisfactory way of thinking about each other blocked any kind of practical solution of their conflict. uh, Thus we get things like the so-called donation of uh, Constantine to the Bishop of Rome. It's interesting here you have the bishop higher than Constantine, obviously uh, uh, an image uh, drawn by and painted by a cleric, but Constantine is giving the Bishop of Rome uh, the, uh, the dominion over, over territories in the West so that the Bishop of Rome can, in effect, become the emperor of the West, uh, in effect. But in about 500 of the Common Era, something of a theoretical resolution of this uneasy relation between emperor and church was attempted by Pope Gelasius I, who you see here. Um, Gelasius is also famous probably more famous for two things. First, he, uh, he, was a, he, he canonized or made um, uh, St. George a saint. And more important than that, of course, is uh, that he was the pope who uh, made Valentine, St. Valentine, the saint and St. Valentine's Day, and all of that follows. Altogether, a kind of sweet and sour pope uh, with two edges to his sword, so to speak. Uh, in a letter that the pope 494 that he wrote to the emperor Anastasius, the pope promulgated what historians have called, <coughs> a historian like Stephen Osmond, <coughs> has called the perhaps the most balanced statement of the relation between secular and ecclesiastical power in the West. <coughs> this expressed a theory that sought at least to address the conflict between empire and church at the level of theology and thought, even if it left practical conflicts to be resolved on their own terms. So addressing the emperor, Gelasius wrote of his new understanding, there are two, said the Pope, by which this world is chiefly ruled, the sacred authority, auctoritas, of the priesthood, and the royal power, potestas, 
of the emperor. Now, if the bishops, recognizing that the imperial office was conferred on you by divine disposition, obey your laws so far as the sphere of public order is concerned, the bishops obeying the emperor, with what zeal ought you to obey those who have charged, been charged with the administration of sacred mysteries? So you have a, a, an, an interaction here. In effect, what Gelasius is doing is he viewed agency, so to speak, like, the classic, like a classic Hindu between the Brahmins and the, and, the, and the Kshatriya. He saw the two conflicted entities of function, this auctoritas of the priest and the potestas of the emperor, as related in terms of a rather subtle, even hierarchical complementarity, like two arms of the body. Instead of opposed autonomous agencies placed into polar juxtaposition with one another, they were brought into an intimate legal relationships with one another, much as we oppose and engage left and right arms unequally in the interest of a common body's operation. Some sort of essential balance and reciprocity was achieved in theory, at least, Instead of mere correlation of two independent agencies or instead of a mere submission of the kings to the priests or the priests to the kings, Gelasius posited a subtle interrelation defined by an internal give and take an institutional mutuality and interdependence. The church and empire were taken to be internally and essentially related to one another, thus not externally cobbled together in some sort of makeshift arrangement. Gelasius says that as the priests is subordinate to the king in mundane matters that regard public order, so, by the very same token, the king is subordinate to the priest in spiritual matters. This relation of institutions dictated in its turn a corresponding, <coughs> in its turn, a corresponding actual relationship of the exercise of complementary powers, the potential or actual alloy of coercive force or potestas and authority. The potestas of the king, therefore, requires submission of the priests in temporal matters, while the auctoritas of the priests demands submission of the king's potestas in spiritual matters. And this is, however, just the opposite, one must note, the saying that the king wields spiritual power or spiritual authority, or that priests now, have, uh, now, have, now are armed, uh, have armed might at their disposal. It is to say that each recognizes the prerogatives of the other in their own proper domains. The two agencies, as it were, live off each other without becoming each other. Both are needed to make up the social whole. This, of course, is that same relationship that pertains between the Brahmin and the king in classical India. There, there is not a contracted assemblage of independent substances brought together out of convenience to deal socially with one another. The Brahmin and the king are part of the same organic whole, different, at different levels of a single structure. They belong to each other by being necessary parts of the same totality. Thus, while Brahmins may flatter themselves as religiously or absolutely superior to the king, they are not superior in any absolute sense, and certainly not in kingly matters. It is of the very nature of the Brahmin they are, that they are materially subject, for example, to the Indian king, and thus that they belong to him <coughs> as as he does to them in ritual or religious matters. Likewise, when we return to Gelasius, we must interpret this pope's attempt at reconciling potestas and auctoritas as putting them into hierarchical relationship of complementarity that the ancient Indians would well understand. Thus, if the church is in the empire with respect to worldly matters, the empire is in the church regarding things divine. There is simply no Roman social world at all for Gelasius unless these two agencies belong to one another 
essentially. How far can authority in a political context go without power as protests us? Not very far. Can the powers that be rule without legitimating, supporting authority? Well, they can to some extent, but really in the long run, not very much at all either. Gelasius again seems to be assuming as along with political philosopher Joseph Raz, um, that the right to rule is complemented by the obligation to obey. So Gelasius' delicate, arguably unsustainable ideological balance was not, however, to survive for more than a couple centuries, even as a piece of theory. The two agencies, Potestas and Auctoritas, were to become ever more confused. Potestas would, in effect, swallow up Auctoritas, and power, power proper, Potestas, would reduce all other agency to itself, including Auctoritas. The final tipping point, of course, comes with the, the arrival of the Franks and the, the, the formation of the Holy Roman Empire. Because not only did the Pope crown Charlemagne and thus bless the Carolingian line as the beginning of the Holy Roman Empire, but for the first time, the popes themselves became supreme political authorities as well. This situation would last through the Middle Ages, such that the real state of the Middle Ages in the modern sense, if the words are not a paradox, is the church itself. Uh, It is a a claim, the Pope's claim, in fact, is uh, a claim of inherent right to political power. A change is introduced in the relation of the divine to the earthly. The divine now claims to rule the world through the church, and the church becomes inworldly, or worldly in a sense, it was not heretofore. Both church and emperor claim to rule by the virtue of their power, their potestas. Dumont thus argues that we think about power as a unified field rather than as an arena of complementarity, a complementary difference, because the church simply ceased representing the spiritual alone. It took on a temporal role, while the emperor added or augmented a spiritual agency to his manifest temporal profile. Put otherwise, at some identifiable historical point, the spiritual became temporal and the temporal became spiritual for us. At some point, what had been two distinct principles, the spiritual and the temporal, had ceased becoming distinct at all, but instead became two forms of the same thing, that is, power. As the distinction between empire and church shrank, the popes assumed the rule of the emperors of the West, and the principles of spiritual and temporal collapsed into one another. And we now live with the results of these historical processes by thinking about power as we we do that is, the configuration of major institutions of the West, empire and church, resulted in a different way of thinking about power as supreme and as a unified field. Despite his attempts to bring both agencies under common submission to common interests of the social whole, which had formed their constituent parts, Gelasius's delicate contrivance was thus undone. And one might say that both agencies, once solely representing potestas or auctoritas respectively, went their own ways, with potestas assuming the principal and autonomous place. And thus, in the place of a a hierarchy, a diarchy, the church became the basis of a monarchy of an unprecedented sort, a spiritual monarchy. This is why leading scholars argue that the divine right of kings, so, so to speak, was actually first claimed by the pope, only later to counterclaims to papal authority to temporal, in the temporal realm did the same the secular powers declare themselves rulers directly from God by divine right without the need of any papal mediation. 
Therefore, although the Pope held supremacy over all the kings and princes, this condition was always subject to uneasy contestation, mostly in practice, if not in terms of, 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 of new doctrine. One of the great examples <coughs> of, this, um, the, of this uneasy relationship uh, that persisted uh, because of the Pope's assumption of temporal power was um, and a display at the same time of a spectacular display of papal authority comes when the Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV petitioned the Pope to relieve his excommunication by standing in the snow for three days outside the gates of Canossa, as we see. You know, if you can make the make out the Pope, there's uh, not a lot of snow there, but there's the there's the Pope, <laughs> there's the Pope um, peeking out, sort of. <clears throat> deciding whether he's satisfied with the humiliation of the emperor. 1077. Henry was eventually reinstated by the pope, but as soon as he was, he returned his violations. So while we can see that the popes ruled, they also did so with increasing unease. And the Babylonian captivity and the rise of the kingdoms of France in particular over against the Holy Roman Empire and the great Western schism were all to come in short order and greatly um, diminish the power of the Pope. The ultimate lesson for us here, as far as our thought about power then, it matters little who held the scepter of dominion because in either case, the, the church, the state, or the state, the political that is power proper gains the upper hand and thus autonomy. Henceforth, the spiritual and temporal realms are unified at the expense of the spiritual. Both emperor and pope, along with the agencies of their reign, are referred to then as powers. They're both powers. The term power proper, potestas, now also names autoritas, since it too is now just another kind of power. Authority is another kind of power. It's not something different. It's not something that's juxtaposed to potestas, but it's just a kind of a weakened form of potestas. What I'm urging us then to begin grasping <clears throat> and seeing this collective past of the West in terms of this history um, is that, that we neither distinguish the religious uh, and the political. Um, they could not untangle themselves from each other because they were institutionally untangled uh, with each other. Thus, we are pressed, as the historian John Neville Figgis says, to recall a time in our history when to speak, quote, of the two great bodies whose clash had been unending, state and church, uh, were so bound up together, an unity that they could not be conceived, either of them, as separate societies with a separate life, but each appeared as different aspects or functions of one and the same body. In this sense, then, the frequent clashes within society took on the form of civil war, Pope and emperor, when they quarreled, quarreled like brothers as members of the same society. It is precisely because the same society did not separate out religion and politics that our thinking about them did not separate out either. This pre-modern, institutionally configured, historically specific confusion of agencies explains a host of other oddities in the world of religion and politics as it has was to become in our own time. Why does it not seem that politics can quite get religion out of its head. Why, for example, does an otherwise worldly institution defined by it, monopolized uh, uh, by the monopolization of force, violence, power, in the sense of protest, toss the modern state or the nation state, assume a religious character such that it becomes, for example, the focus of absolute obedience or that which individual citizens not only do sacrifice their lives, but also feel that they are obliged so to do. Why is the state's 
authority over life and death virtually unquestioned. Why else is it <clears throat> considered the natural focus of the highest personal and common loyalties? After all, other large collectiv collectivities do not make such demands, even if they try sometimes. Why is it then in this way that it, the state becomes this bearer of absolute values, transcendent spiritual elements that one would normally assign to God or some kind of religious entity? The historical analysis that I presented here of the collapse of Gelasius contrives suggests an answer. That the nation states possess such remarkable qualities shows, therefore, that it is not in continuity with other political forms, such as the Frankish migratory band or the Roman patria civitatis or Greek polis. It is a transformed church. From this lofty position as the transformed church, a modern state and its values of power hold sway universally and thus have their authority. As transformed church, the modern state makes absolute demands for sacrifice, for absolute loyalty, for recognition of its transcendent claims to allegiance. It is a power indeed, a power as well, a font of all power, the hegemon monopolizing the use of force. As such, the modern state also lays claim in practice at least to the highest authority in the human world, despite the occasional protestations of some religious folk. Here, of course, here as well is, is the uplifting and unprecedented secret of those speaking truth to power who have voiced uh, those words, uh, uh, those various religious folk driven by, dri uh, driven, uh, by uh, social concerns in our own time. The edifying mystery, I might add, embraced by those distinctly unfashionable movements of resistance to protestas and auctoritas by a Martin Luther King, by a Gandhi, by a Dalai Lama. Religious foundations of the modern state. There's a couple of short pictures here. The, I mentioned the, the, um, the Babylonian captivity. Just to give you, an, and those of you who have been to Avignon uh, will grasp what I'm saying. This is, this is a, a, a photo of the, <coughs> of the papal palace in Avignon um, built in the 14th century, early 14th century. Uh, that's just an incredible thing. It just dominates the whole, the whole city. I think I'm going to find one more picture here. This is from across the river, yeah. This is massive. It's, it's the most, it's the most uh, intact, uh, 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 massive, uh, gothic, uh, uh, non-ecclesiastical structure in the world. Uh, the Papal Palace, the Palais Chateauneuf de Pop, for those uh, <laughs> the wine, the wine crowd, the wine crowd, Chateauneuf de Pop. This is it. That's the new home of the Pope. Religious foundations of the modern state. The worldly rule of popes in the Middle Ages, I've been arguing, could not but have left the mark on all our thinking about power and politics thereafter. No matter how surprising that influence might be to us today. At its most extreme, this permits right-wing German political philosophers like Carl Schmitt to say that, quote, all significant concepts of the theory of state are secularized theological concepts, unquote. The rules, so to speak, for wielding potestas were written by the popes as much as they were the result of imperial deeds. <clears throat> the actual fact of the worldly rule by a theoretically otherworldly institution such as the church left its mark on Western traditions of practical sovereignty and political thought. One stunning example of this institution of ecclesiastical influence upon our fundamental secular institutions may be found in the institution of constitutionalism. Quote, the sonorous phrases of the Declaration of Independence or the Rights of Man 
are not an original discovery. They are the heirs of, the, of all the ages, the depository of the emotions and thoughts of 70 centuries, of 70 generations of culture, unquote. This is our friend Figgis, the historian Figgis claiming this continuity. And prominent among other, other evidence for such a legacy <coughs> of intimacy between church and state is the frequently celebrated influence of the Council of Constance. And here's a, a little um, uh, image of that, um, uh, that council gathered there in 1414 to 1418. What historian Francis Oakley called the most memorable general council held by the Latin church, and one we hear very little about today. Called originally to end the embarrassment of Christendom having three simultaneously contending popes, and thus to resolve the great Western schism, the Council of Constance was occupied with weighty matters having to do um, uh, uh, and having um, having to make weighty decisions. Finally, resolving the dispute among the contending popes in favor of one, the Council issued its summary document called the Sacrosancta. And significantly for us is that this modern is that modern historians have seen this ecclesiastical document as enunciating a principle that would give priority to both ecclesiastical and secular constitutionalism. The council's final statement asserted the rights of the council over against the papacy and in effect challenged any incipient absolutist notions of governance both in the church and by example to the secular sphere as well. In the religious sphere, the sacrosancta became the classic defense of the rights of the many against the claims of the one. And a statement from that, a bit from that, gives you this view. It says, this holy council of Constance declares first that it is lawfully assembled in the Holy Spirit and that it constitutes a general council representing the Catholic Church and that therefore it has authority immediately from Christ and that all men... All men of every rank and condition, including the Pope himself, are bound to obey it. For enthusiasts of this document, the Council's decree determined the Pope to be, in some sense, a constitutional ruler. And in doing so, produced nothing short, says one prominent historian, the most revolutionary official document in the history of the world. That's a tall statement, but uh, it's made and it's, and it's defended. That at least... Constitutional scholars recognize the revolutionary character of constitutional principles only affirms these historical judgments about the importance of the Council of Constance um, in our own time. Commenting on the practicality of American constitutionalism, for example, one prominent American student of our constitutional law recently remarked, the rejection of absolutism implicit in our constitutional structure may sometimes make our policies seem unprincipled. But for the most of our history, it has encouraged the very process of information gathering, analysis, and argument that allows us to make better, if not perfect, choices, not only about the means to our ends, but also about the ends themselves, the very ends of life themselves. Constitutionalism, on this view, holds the place of an absolute, and dare I say religious value, since it embodies the very ends of life itself. The absolute and unquestionable nature of our commitment to constitutionalism has prompted this same author, this um, same author, to, to, um, um, uh, to say, sometimes, he says, this same author, I imagine that my work was not so different from the work of the theology professors who taught across the campus at the University of Chicago. In, in particular, 
There's a, there's a, hold that picture for a while. <laughs> a tough dude, he's tough about constitutions. Okay, this document, therefore, issuing from the council, um, was the first official statement of the rights of the people of a popular sovereignty in the history of the West. First example of that. The sacrosancta of the early 15th century was therefore populist and democratic, you might say, in the way that the Magna Carta was in the political sphere. And that is to say, while it may not have been a full declaration of the modern notion of democracy and individual rights as found in the Declaration of Independence or the Rights of Man, sacrosancta moved things along in that direction. Now, there's every reason to think that the lessons of Constance passed to the founders of the American and French republics by way of resistance theorists and constitutionalists of the 17th century. The, that robust historian, as the historians will call him, not Obama, we'll give you Obama in his office too. There he is. Uh, we'll do that. Okay, Henry Prynne, or, or rather William Prynne, um, 1600, 1669, repeated, <coughs> uh, repeatedly cited uh, in his his, uh, his quarrels with with, uh, with with Charles I uh, on the on the uh, advent of the British Civil War English Civil War um, cited um, the Council of Constance in his arguments against absolutism um, and contemporary historians from Dale uh, von Clay on the French Jansenists and Quentin Skinner on the Calvinist resistance and revolution thinkers have argued that Constance indirectly if and nonetheless did give, indeed, birth to our own modern notion of constitutionalism. I should only note in passing here that, as one might expect, anthropologist Tal al-Assad refuses to attribute to religion, in this case Christianity, any agency in constituting our present political ideals and institutions, directing his jibes at an admittedly extreme proponent of these, this view, Carl Schmitt. Assad says... One of the things Schmidt's political theology that I find myself dissatisfied with is his attempt to show that many secular political ideas are essentially Christian, unquote. Well, in closing, I want to say that I think it's Assad who might perhaps pay more attention to the religious foundations of our modern political institutions. Is it plausible that even after achieving the great separation from one another, after the modern severance of religious and political arms from one another, that these two arms, once joined so closely so long, should be utter strangers to one another? It should be obvious that since our country grew out of the historical processes characteristic of Western civilization, and since that Western civilization was formed in critical ways by Christianity, the foundation of our country can hardly escape its own, at least Latin or Western Christian history. But here precisely is the rub, and where some of us, some of the nastier battles of our cultural wars are joined. In what sense can the United States said to be substantially indebted to Christianity, such that our citizenship places us under obligations that can be said to be rooted in the history of Christianity in the West and identified as such? If we are to believe the Christian right, nothing short of a belief in God is required of all Americans in order to remain faithful to the American founding. As the Christian right argues, do not the monotheistic beliefs of the founders as formally codified in the Declaration of Independence's reference to nature's God and the Creator settle that matter? One implication of my talk today is that the debate about the relation of our politics and religion in the United States is set on the wrong course. The Christian right has simply been looking in the wrong places for evidence of the importance of religion in the American founding. And it is not to core Christian beliefs that we should look to understand the transcendent values founding our nation. 
It is to historically accidental facts about his Latin Christianity, such as conciliarism, that we should look in the search for the sources of our dedication to Republican constitutionalism. Christianity could well have been quite otherwise than an institution based on representative and conciliar principles. There might not have been a Council of Constance. While Christianity is inconceivable without Jesus, monotheism, and a number of other beliefs, one can well conceive Christianity in which the councils of the church were never convened and in which decisions were never made by councils roughly representing the membership of the church as a collective body. Indeed, high papalism, as some have called it, has done all in its power to erase the the memory of conciliarism um, from uh, uh, the memory of of, of the, the collective memory of Christianity. That high papalism has not succeeded in this erasure, and that conciliarism represents both the bulk of the Reformation tradition as well as the leading edge of progressive Roman Catholic thinking and figures like uh, Swiss theologian uh, Hans Kuhn speak eloquently to the political nature of this ongoing struggle to divine the, the nature of sovereignty in the church. Thus, to say as I have that our politics cannot be freed from religion because our commitment to Republican constitutionalism derives from Christian conciliarism is not to oblige anyone to commitment to any essential Christian belief. It is instead to recognize the concrete institutional historical processes that have given us our constitution and its representative politics. Autocrats of all ages have uh, eagerly seized upon the paradigmatic and legitimating value of of a model of a papal of a papal absolutism to support their own absolutisms. Given what I've argued, those committed to constitutional and republican forms of government can then feel confident that having recourse to the history of Latin Christianity can likewise support democratic political institutions. So far from making Christians of all of us, it should make historians and historians of religion, I might add, of all of us. In that sense, grasping how and why aspects of our politics are not separable from religious from religion demands no religious commitment, only a belief in the reality of historical processes and institutions. So affirming innovation does not require denying ancient foundations. And that finally is why our politics cannot be freed from religion. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.